gives us the victory through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Praise God. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Kings chapter 21. 1 Kings chapter 21 and verse number 1. 1 Kings chapter 21, verse number 1. Praise God. And it came to pass after these things that Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard which was in Jezreel hard by the palace of Ahab king of Samaria and Ahab spoke unto Naboth saying give me thy vineyard that I may have it for a garden of herbs because it is near unto my house and I will give thee for it a better vineyard than it or if it seem good to thee I will give thee the worth of it in money and Naboth said to Ahab the Lord forbid it me that I should give the inheritance of my fathers unto thee. For a few moments this morning, I want to speak on this subject, the estimator, the estimator. Lord, we thank you and praise you. We ask that your word would be a strength to us on this day. We thank you for many blessings and your goodness to us, and we ask that you would direct us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God bless you. you can be seated. I want to talk to you by way of introduction here this morning on the benefits of shadow boxing. Now, you may have never have participated in this particular exercise, but shadow boxing is a training method that accompanies the martial arts, especially boxing. And the reason why I bring it up is because it's actually in the scripture and Paul refers to shadow boxing. Typically, it's used as a warm-up and gradually increases the heart rate and prepares the muscle for training. And in shadow boxing, a contender moves around the room, throws punches at the air in a way that mimics fighting or sparring. And at first glance, it might not seem like much more than a simple warm-up, but in reality, shadow boxing has tremendous benefits. It plays a role in how a person trains, it, it has an overall effect of growth of one that actually gets in the ring. And so the art of shadow boxing should not be overlooked. And the reason, again, that I'm bringing this up by way of introduction is because Paul mentions shadow boxing. Shadow boxing has a lot of benefits. It helps your form. There's no pressure to throw out fast punches at a bag or at an opponent. There's nothing coming back at you. And so you can focus on form and you can practice your stance and building up good fighting habits. And a stance is important. How you put your feet, how you bend your knees, how your feet should be wider than shoulder width apart, how your elbows should be down, how your hands should be up, how your chin should slightly be down, but your stare should be forward. And so this is a, a benefit of shadow boxing, which is your form. Not only is your form important, but your technique is important. How do you improve certain skills like a jab, a straight punch, or an uppercut? How do you perfect those strikes? And so when you're shadow boxing, you're working on those punching combos. 
and those skills and you start drilling them into yourself as much as you can so that you get into your muscle memory exactly what you're doing so that you don't even have to think about it once you practice enough. So from punches to footwork to movement and dodges, these things are a benefit to shadow boxing. Movement and balance. There are times that you get into an actual fight and you swing and you miss an opponent. What happens then when you're shadow boxing, you already know what that feels like because you're not hitting anything. And so instead of being thrown off balance, you know how to land and you know what the timing is. Muscle memory, I've mentioned, is another benefit because when you do this over and over, when you repeat certain moves over and over, it becomes something called muscle memory that you do without even thinking about at some point. You have an opportunity, the benefits of shadow boxing, to develop a mindfulness in which you are fully attentive to what is going on in the present moment, your surroundings, your actions, your thoughts, and your feelings. And then you put all of that together, and then just the act of shadow boxing is a good form of exercise. It is a full body workout. You're working your chest, your shoulders, your arms, and leg muscles. It burns calories. It's a great way for beginners to build up some muscle mass. If you're a little more advanced, you can perform your movements at a higher level to continue to change your body structure. So there is a lot of benefits in shadow boxing. And Paul mentions this when he's talking about not a physical opponent and not necessarily even shadow boxing as a benefit that I've just described, but he talks about it in a spiritual sense. And he uses this as an illustration in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 24. He says, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all? But one receiveth the prize, so run that you may obtain. And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, and here's where he gives us the illustration, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air. Paul is, is not saying that he is just fighting a fight and that shadow boxing is not important. He's saying you have to put the time and effort in because there is going to be a time in which it's not a moment of uncertainty and there's nothing wrong with practicing for uncertainty as I've just described, but there's going to be times when the uncertainty becomes a real opponent and when a real opponent is there, you had better have taken some time to make sure that you recognize I'm practicing for when a real opponent comes my way. Praise God. And in a spiritual sense, Paul is talking not about an incorruptible thing. He's not talking about martial arts and boxing and the whole culture and everything that goes with that. He is saying there is a prize that is greater than the heavyweight belt in a boxing ring. But you can take that illustration in terms of applying it to an incorruptible crown. Those things are going to pass away.
away. But there is a corruptible crown that passes away. There's an incorruptible crown that you can pursue. And it's called the work of God, the kingdom of God. It's called the crown of life. Praise God. It's some benefits that come your way to a walk with God. And Paul is saying, don't fight uncertainly, but know there's an opportunity when an opponent comes that you're going to be ready. Ladies and gentlemen, in the house of God today, you're going to have some opponents that come your way that will try to take you out, clean your clock, knock you out, knock you down. Praise God. But you got to have an opportunity and a spirit that says, I'm ready for the opponent when he comes. I came to the house of God. I did some shadow boxing here. I worship the Lord today. I spent some time in prayer. And so when the enemy comes, I'm going to be ready. God, I'm going to be ready. I'm not fighting uncertainty. Uncertainly, praise God. I'm in the house of God today because I know why I'm in the house of God. I'm not uncertain why I am here. If you're uncertain why you're here, see me after church because certainly we came to the house of God to worship him and to praise him. Certainly we're disciplining ourselves to make sure that we operate in the spirit and the move of God touches us. It's not an uncertain thing. It is a certain thing that I'm here. As a matter of fact, some of you are still working on that, but some of you that are here, it becomes part of your muscle memory. This is just what we do because we've done it over and over and over. When Sunday morning comes, I'm going to church. When Sunday night comes, I'm going to the house of God. When Tuesday night rolls around, I'm going to be in Bible study because it's important because I'm not fighting something that is uncertain. I'm fighting something that is certain. Paul said, I'm not fighting uncertainly. I'm fighting for an incorruptible crown. And your real opponent that is going to face you in a spiritual battle, your adversary is the devil. The scripture said he is like a roaring lion and describes him as your adversary. One that is going to try his very best to take from you the value that God has given to you. You know, we need to have a little spiritual intestinal fortitude that says, I don't care what it is, I'm going to live for God. Praise God. I don't care how small it is or how great it is. I'm still living for God. You're not going to distract me off of an incorruptible crown. Praise God. Are you here today because you're fighting for an incorruptible crown? I don't want the corruption of the world. I want the incorruption of God's spirit and God's anointing and the peace of God and the benefits that come with serving him. Praise God. The adversary is going to try to, well, he's going to try to knock you out. And so given these facts, what are your training techniques? What are you applying in your life? Your foe is going to come to challenge you. And what Paul was saying is, I am explaining something on a spiritual level that you can go back in the Old Testament and find a literal historical example of it. 
Praise God. We're in a spiritual struggle and a spiritual battle. But Paul said all these things were written for our examples. So we can go back into the Old Testament and we can find examples of where somebody is a good estimator of what they have and the value that they have. Where other people are not good estimators of the value that they have. Praise God. I, I want to say this emphatically. I want to say it emphatic today. I want to say that what you have today in the house of God is of great value. Praise God. Your walk with God and your spiritual life is of great value. Amen. The world is pursuing after corruptible things. How about some people saying, we're not going down that road. We're pursuing some things that are of greater value. Praise God. And if you're if you're on the fence with that, well then stop and think about it this way. If you didn't have the church, you didn't have the house of God, you didn't have the movement of God and you said, I don't know that it's of great value, then how are you going to fight the struggles that you're in, that you're facing presently in the house of God? If you're in the house of God and you're fighting them, what would you be doing if you weren't in the house of God? You'd be turning to all kinds of coping mechanisms and pharmaceuticals and alcohol and drug addictions and everything else to try to deal with life. But thank God Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and life more abundantly. I may struggle but the Holy Ghost is with me. I may have difficulties, but the Spirit of God is on me and I can make it. I can be more than an overcomer because of his Spirit. Woo, I feel the Holy Ghost. Somebody needs to clap your hands in the house of God today and say, thank you, Jesus, for the value that I have that you've given to me, the precious things of God, the precious anointing of God. I'm going to keep fighting. I'm going to make it. I'm going to keep exercising. Praise God. I'm not going to let the enemy steal my crown, but I'm going to fight for it. I wish I had some serious folks in this place. There's a battle for your soul. You've got to get a spirit that says, I'm practicing. But when the real opponent shows up, he's not going to knock me out, take me out, tear me down. Choke me out. Arm pulled arm hold strong arm bar I don't know all the moves I don't know what it is all I know is this he's coming and when he comes I'm going to be ready for the fight Paul said fight the good fight of faith it's going to be a fight and so he describes this notion of not fighting uncertainty but it's a real thing. And you can go to the Old Testament to find examples. And in our text scripture that we read here, we read of a real life example in which Naboth is facing a real opponent. Ahab wanted Naboth's vineyard for a garden because it was close to his palace. And since in this equation, he has all the leverage, he's the king. Naboth is just a farm owner, a vineyard owner. He has the ability to go to him and in our passage of scriptures, he says, give me your 
vineyard. And so Naboth says, I can't do that. Before we look at some of those details, Ahab was the son of Omri. He was the seventh king of the northern kingdom of Israel, second of his dynasty. And he reigned for 28 years from 919 to 897 B.C. He had some occasional good impulses, but he was weak and he was misled by his wife that he married by the name of Jezebel, who was the daughter of Ethbel, which was Phoenicia, part of Phoenicia, part of the Phoenician Empire, which was to the north. And these, these two uh, nations were in close proximity. The northern kingdom of Israel was adjacent to it, connected to it. And because of its great commercial um, success and shipping and ports, there was a lot of interaction between Israel and Phoenicia because that's the only way that you could get product out onto the open sea. And so because of that close connection, then there was an, an amalgamation or a conflict of, of we're the people of God and Phoenicia followed after Baal. Baal was a fertility deity and one of the most important gods in the pantheon. Baal was thought of not only to have fertility in terms of sexuality, but also in terms of agriculture. It was all wrapped up in the same thing. This is one of the reasons why you had temple prostitutes and sexuality was kind of morphed into that and agriculture because agriculture was the great uh, commerce. So Baal was supposed to give the rain and then the rain, the crops and everything was supposed to go together. This is one of the reasons why when Elijah went to King Ahab and he said, there's going to be a famine in the land. This was a strike at Baal and it was to reveal that Baal is not more powerful than Yahweh. And so this Phoenician nation from which Jezebel came out of, they worshiped Baal, a fertility deity, and Astarte, which is the Canaanite Phoenician goddess of love, sex, war, and hunting. And so they, they, they worshiped these different gods. And Ahab, when he married Jezebel, he married into that kind of culture. And instead of her coming his way and conforming to his belief as a king of Israel, what ended up happening is what is called a synchronism, which means he took some of his faith and some of her faith and then amalgamated together until there was a lot of confusion, a lot of confusion. The children of Israel were halting between two opinions and they didn't know quite what to do. And, and, and this, is, this is devastating. In their history, this was devastating because it diluted the worship of the one true living God. It limited the power and the ability. And so they found themselves in this kind of condition, kind of like when 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14, when Paul is talking to the church and he says, be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness and what communion hath light with darkness and what concord hath Christ with Belial or what part 
hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. So in the New Testament, you get a, a spiritual truth. He's quoting from the Old Testament because that was acted out and it created a lot of pain and anguish for the children of Israel. And Ahab was caught up in this marriage with his wife Jezebel and he had diluted the worship of God and he had syncretized all these different ideas and he created temples for Baal and groves and so there, there was a mixture of worship. Ahab was preeminent for luxurious tastes he elaborately or had a ornamented ivory palace. He built many cities and restored. And as a, as a matter of rebellion, he rebuilt Jericho. And that was in defiance of Joshua's curse that Jericho would never be rebuilt. But Ahab did. So he had a palace and he had a park and he had a beautiful residence in Samaria, the capital that showed all of its magnificence. And so he, he looks out and he sees this small vineyard and he wants it for himself. And so he's already violated uh, the first commandment. Thou shalt have no gods uh, before me. So he's already violated that in his, his uh, leadership. And so he violates the first commandment and he has no problem violating further commandments. The first commandment was obvious. Jezebel had great influence. She introduced Baal and other gods, violating the first commandment. And he built an altar and temple to Baal in Samaria. And, but the public was halting between a state of indecision between Jehovah and Baal. So prevalent was idolatry in his kingdom. Baal had 450 prophets. And Asherah, which was the groves, had 400. Jezebel entertained at her own table. And so God chastised Israel with drought and famine through Elijah. And so Ahab was in this situation where he's influenced, and yet here in our passage that we have read, he is coveting Naboth's vineyard to add to his gardens. He's already violated the first commandment. Naboth said, I cannot do this. It is not within my power to do because that would violate some further laws. Leviticus chapter 25 and verse 23, the scripture reads, and remember the land must never be sold on a permanent basis because it really belongs to me. You are only foreigners and tenants living with me. So it was ancestral land. Even in the law itself, if you owned a piece of property and for whatever reason you found yourself in debt and you had to sell it to somebody, your family could step in and buy the property. And if your family, that's what the kinsman redeemer was all about. That's, that's Boaz and Ruth and Naomi and the whole story there. But if you didn't have a kinsman redeemer and you could not buy it and you became enslaved, at some point, depending on the year of Jubilee, at some point, the, the land would still go back to you. And the rate of the land would depend on how close you were to the year of Jubilee. So even if you lost it, you could redeem it at some point, and God had built that right into his commandments. And so 
Naboth is standing here saying, number one, I, it's, it's a, it's, this is just a sale. It's not a matter of me having to give it up. It's not a, ma a matter of me being in debt. I can't sell this land. I can't sell it. And Ahab had no problem with that because he was desensitized to the word of God, so that didn't matter. He had everything that he wanted, but he wanted more. And so the, the question that we could ask is, why not go find something else to plant your vineyard or your garden that you why Why do you want to take this guy's vineyard that's close by your palace? Just why, why don't you leave him alone and, 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 and build somewhere else because you got the means and the wherewithal to do that. But isn't this just like the enemy? Praise God. There's a lot of other things that you could be focusing on. Why are you focusing on me? I'm, I'm just a child of God trying to live for God, do a work for God. All right, mind my own business and serve the king. You got a whole world out there and yet you're wanting to focus on what I've got. And he'll come and he'll try to take that and he'll try to steal that. He'll try to work on you when you're doing your best just to live for God. And the reason why we miss here is because too many times the devil is a better estimator of our inheritance than we are. You know why people walk away from God? It's because they're not a good estimator of the goodness of God. You know why people struggle and just, well, I'll just sell whatever. They're not a good estimator of the land that God has given to them. Don't walk away from what God has given you. Praise God. If you came into the house of God and God has done great things in your life, don't walk away from the land of blessing and goodness and favor that is upon your life. It's an inheritance that God has given you. Estimate it correctly. Give you could give me this, you could take this whole world, but give me Jesus. I'm not leaving what God has carved out for me. This is a blessing. This is an inheritance of God. I'm a good estimator of what God has done. I'll not sell it. I'll not walk away. I'll not give it up, but I'll fight for it even if it means, in the case of Naboth, even if it means my own death. He was encroaching upon Naboth's blessing. While Ahab was tearing down the laws of God, Naboth was upholding them. This land is my inheritance. Do you value what God has given to you? I'm talking to you about the gift of God in your life. God has placed some prime property in your hands. Amen. In Isaiah chapter 28, verse number 11, with stammering lips and another tongue will he speak to this people to whom he said, this is the rest wherewith you cause the weary to rest and this is the refreshing. I'm going to give you an inheritance. In Joel chapter 2, verse 28, he said, and it shall come to pass that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh and your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out of my spirit. And then he transferred the deed to the property on the day of Pentecost when Peter said this is that. They didn't know they were privy to an inheritance until somebody told them. I am telling you here this morning God 
God is wanting to make you aware that you own some blessed property, but you have to claim it. You have to claim it. This was given to me. This is ancestral land. It came from my ancestors. I can't give it to you, Naboth. Praise God. It's standing here in the house of God. I want to tell you that there's some property that is ancestral land that I own. It not, may not be physical property, but it comes from my ancestor, Jesus Christ, who died at Calvary and purchased it with his own blood and said, I'm going to give you the deed to the property. When you are filled with the Holy Ghost, I'm going to transfer over to you some blessings that you could not imagine before. But when the Holy Ghost is operating in your life, you will understand the value of the inheritance of God. You've been living in the works of the flesh. Galatians said the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envies, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of the which I tell you before, as I've told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. That's where I was. That's what I had. But Jesus gave to me a rich inheritance that is better than that that cesspool, praise God, in that dump. I'm coming out of that into a new realm and into a new life. Praise God. Thanks be to God that I have an inheritance. I've got some property. I may not own any property in this world, but I own some spiritual property. It's an incorruptible property. You can't take it away from me. I'm a good estimator of the value of what God has given to me. I'm thankful for the peace of God. I'm thankful for the joy that is unspeakable and full of glory. I'm Praise God. Step into the land of promise. <laughs> Inherit the land of promise. Amen. Not the works of the flesh, but the fruit of the spirit, which is love. Which is joy. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, he went and sold all that he had, and he bought the field. He recognized there's value in this field. Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. was a member of the U.S. Supreme Court for 30 years. At one point in his life, Justice Holmes explained his choice of a career by saying, I might have entered the ministry if certain clergymen I knew had not looked and acted so much like undertakers. <laughs> there was no joy. <laughs> Praise God. No offense, Brother Jester. <laughs> Praise God. <laughs> that was his occupation, but the Holy Ghost is in him. He's always got a smile. And this particular man said, I would have chosen another occupation, but I chose to be a Supreme Court judge because all the preachers walked around looking like they were funeral home directors. Praise God. You know what you've got? You've got an inheritance of joy 
that is unspeakable and full of glory. That's different than happiness. Happiness is fleeting and an emotion. Joy is much deeper than that. Joy can, you, you can have joy in the middle of turmoil and struggles. You know why? Because you're a good estimator of the value of the inheritance that you've got. I may be going through a rough patch, but I've still got the joy of the Lord because it's wrapped up in the Holy Ghost and the Holy Ghost gives me strength. Joy, peace, peace. We live in a world that's at war. Since 3600 BC, the world has known only 292 years of peace. That's less than 1% of the entire history of humanity was spent in peace. 14,351 wars, large and small, in which 3.64 billion people have been killed. The value of the property destroyed is equal to a golden belt around the world, 97 miles wide and 33 feet thick. I don't know who did that estimation, but that's pretty interesting. People are at war with God. They're at war with themselves. They're at war with each other. God never intended for us to be at war with each other, but he gave to us inheritance of peace. John chapter 16, verse 33, these things I have spoken unto you that in me you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So testing and trials may come. The musicians prepare and come. Testings and trial will come, but he still means for us to live in peace. That's part of the inheritance. The fruit of the Spirit is an inheritance of God's goodness. He brings to us love and he brings to us joy and he brings to us peace. The famous commentary writer Matthew Henry said, when Christ died, he left a will in which he gave his soul to his father, his body to Joseph of Arimathea, his clothes to the soldiers, his mother to John, but to his disciples who had left all to follow him. He left not silver or gold, but something far better. He left them his peace. There was an inheritance. There was something that was passed on. He gave them the peace of God. He gives to us long-suffering. What is that? That is patience with the work of God. I'm going to be patient in the moment, and I'm going to let God mold and fashion my life. He left to us gentleness, which is character, or how we portray ourselves to others. He left to us goodness. He left to us Faith, which is a confidence in God. These are part of the inheritance. This is the land that you have that is adjacent to the kingdoms of this world. And the enemy looks out and he sees that vineyard and says, I want that because he's an estimator of its value. Praise God. But as a child of God, we recognize there is no amount of money that can buy what God has given to me. The love of God, the peace of God, the joy of God, the long suffering of God, the gentleness of God, the goodness of God, the faith of God, my confidence in him. He's given to us meekness, which is strength under control, and he's given to us temperance, not living in excess. And he says, against such there is no law. What value do you place on the inheritance that God has given? Naboth said, no, I'm not selling because I have placed a premium value on what I have received. It's a premium value. The scripture tells us Ahab didn't press the issue. 
He just went home. And the Bible says that he turned his face to the wall and he started crying. And guess who showed up and saw him crying? Jezebel. And Jezebel engineered a conspiracy by which Naboth was accused of less majeste, which Naboth cursed God and the king, convicted on perjured testimony, and Naboth was stoned to death. And Ahab took possession of the property that he had coveted. You know, it's fascinating. If you go back and you read the story in chapter 21, verses 14 through 16, the frequency of which Naboth's name appears throughout the story is striking. Even after his death, he is named six times in three verses. He haunts the scene like a ghost that will not be laid to rest. He fought for an inheritance because he had a proper value and God never forgets someone that's a true estimator. And so he sends Elijah to Ahab and Ahab is condemned for what he has done. He repents, he is punished, he has a violent death, he has an obliteration of his whole family line that was deferred to the next generation because he took what was not his. But the man whose name is still calling to us in 2022 is a man by the name of Naboth that said, this land comes from ancestry. I can't sell it. I won't sell it because it has too great a value to me. He estimated it rightly. Amen. And the question I've come here today is I've come to ask you, do you value the inheritance that God has richly given to you? Praise God. As we stand together, there must be a tenacity to protect what you have against the opponent that's going to come knocking. If we want to illustrate it in this way, Naboth did a lot of shadow boxing. He worked the farm. He tilled the land. He spent time and effort maintaining it, organizing it, the structure of it, working toward the seasons and what needed to take place and what happened. He spent a lot of time doing that. He spent a lot of time recognizing the value of it. And then when the real opponent came, which just so happened to be the greatest of all the opponents that you could ever imagine, King Ahab, Naboth said, no, I'm not giving up what God has given to me. And he was steadfast and he refused to give up the land. You know, there's, there's things like this scattered all through scripture. Shema. He stands in a bean patch and fights for just a small bean patch until his hand cleaves to the sword. And other people may say, what in the world are you doing? Everybody else is fleeing. Why are you standing? Because Shama said, you know what? I'm tired of running, and I recognize that this land is supposed to be our land. I'm going to fight for it. I'm going to be a true estimator of its value. Praise God.
You know what? Not everybody's going to live for God. I recognize that. There's always, Brother Terry used to say, church is like a train station. Some people are getting on. Some people are getting off. But I will tell you this for the folks that are getting off. They're not estimating the value of what God has given to them. I feel so very sorry for them, and it pains me even to say it. They're going to the weak and beggarly elements of the world. This is the richest inheritance that you could ever want and ever have. You might not have two pennies to rub together, but if the Holy Ghost is operating in your life, you have something of value that is great. Be a good estimator of what God has given to you. Don't let the world come in and tell you you don't really have anything there. That's just a bean patch. That's just a small vineyard. It really does. I'll, I'll buy it and I'll give you something better. No, I'm not giving up what God has richly given to me. I'm going to estimate properly. Amen. Praise God. Did you know the world is full of estimators? They'll come out and, and estimate your real estate. They'll come out and estimate things that you got in your house that are antiques. And for some people, they look at a piece of junk. But an estimator that knows what he or she is doing can look at something and say, that dates back to a certain year. That's worth a lot of money. Sometimes people in their homes, if it's inherited to them, maybe from a grandfather, an uncle or something, they end up with it. They don't even know what they have. And if you're not careful, you just box it all up the trash I don't need that there may be something of great value in there and you need somebody to come along that can estimate the value of what it is praise God amen I want to estimate the value of what God has given I don't want to throw it to the side I don't want to cheapen it I don't want to downplay it I don't want to make fun of it I want to lift my hands and thank God for the inheritance that he's given. Praise God. Amen. More than anything, Lord, I want you to know how much I appreciate the joy, the peace. Could you raise your hand and just, let's, I mean, let's just, could you just thank him for that? Lord, I thank you. More than anything.